can turn our Bibles to John chapter 4. It's a very well-known story, but hopefully you'll be able to draw um, great things from the text. I think every time I read it, I receive something new. Um, and I so delight in his faithfulness. John chapter 4, verse 4. Uh, the title of today's sermon is going to be Fully Known, Fully Loved. And I always use that, that, that. It's I use it everywhere. Uh, fully known, fully loved. Verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. It's the sovereign will of God that he be there. And he had to meet this woman. Um, verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's about 12 o'clock, right? Um, noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew... Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, meaning referring to himself, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said, Sir, you have absolutely nothing to draw with, and the well is so deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Guaranteed. Complete. Absolutely. No matter how much you drink of it, you'll be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered her, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said to her, Yeah, you are right in saying that you have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one that you now live with, not even your husband. What you have said is so true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, meaning you speak and hear directly from God. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know, and we're skipping a few verses. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, Meshiach, he who is called Christ, and that's the Greek, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Meaning, you just blew me away by telling me everything that's inside of me, my history, all that I am. But when the Messiah comes, he will do the same. And then in verse 26, Jesus answers her and says, I who speak to you am the Messiah. People say in the Bible that no, you know, Jesus never claimed himself to be the Son of God. Right here, it says it very plainly. He tells the world that he is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. In verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And in verse 30, they went out of the town and were coming to him. And in verse 39, 
many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Why? Because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, that's what you say. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. Sometimes I go and they're like, what? So, but it's, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, would you have mercy upon me, a sinner, and the mercy that we so are undeserving of, and yet we're blown away at all that you give and pour out this living water, that you never hold back your love from us, no matter what condition we are. And so we're so thankful, and we're blown away. And we ask you, Lord God, grant us a heart that is renewed and revived by the truth of your word, that you may remove all fear, because perfect love will reside in us. And so we're thankful for who you are, and we pray all of this in your name. Amen. Um, so, I just performed a wedding, and several this past year, as well as a few more upcoming. And so I'm kind of the pastor at our church who kind of takes people through the preparation marriage courses. And I sit with them and they, you know, come through my classes and I just kind of go through, here's what marriage is, you got to do your budget and all that. You know, they're like, oh my God, this is so boring, right? But I'm like, your marriage is going to get rocked if you don't think about and talk about this stuff. So we bring up like past relationships. We talk through like literally everything and anything. And they talk about like, how many children are you going to have? And sometimes it's surprising. They're like, you never talked about that? No, I only want zero kids. And you know, the other person's like, what? I want 12. You know, and then they're like, they're like, what? How come we didn't talk about this in eight years we've been dating? You know, and they just kind of have to work through all of that, what they're saying, what their preferences are, all these things. And so when, as I lead a couple through this, you would see in their eyes, they would light up and be like, what? I thought you were this person, and now you're this person? And then they kind of start rethinking, like, are we ready for this? And, you, you know, they get a scared look in their eyes, and, you know, I have to assure them, it's okay. You know, and um, we work through all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, you find out about their, like, debt, you know, their secret credit card debt, you know, and you're like, oh, my God, what have you been buying? It's like, you, I've been buying you food and you jewelry. It's you, you know, and they're like, oh, my God, you know. She starts freaking out, and you're like, oh, my God. And um, I just thought it came from somewhere, like a magic tree that gives money, you know, and so... You struggle through these things, and when you're dating, when you're about to get married, these are the things that all come up. Now, because I teach these things, when I when I talk to the couples, they, they kind of get really excited, you know, about their wedding day, and they talk about um, where they want to hold their wedding, and, you know, if their family is here in this country or that country, and whatever, and state, and they have to move here, and there's a lot of details, and they're fighting over all these things. A long time ago, when people were thinking about having their wedding, they were thinking about, oh man, I want to have it in a beautiful chapel, right? So everyone's talking about, they want like, you know, pillars and, you know, like all sorts of things and organs playing in the background and the doors open and, you know, all these things, maybe doves and things like that. A few years ago, things changed. People went from wanting to have weddings in churches with lots of steeples and these things to farms, right? So everyone wanted to have a wedding in a farm. And so everyone was like searching for farms with horses and mason jars and wildflowers. And people were like dressing down. There's no more like poofy wedding dresses. Everything is like 
flowy and the you know girl has like flowers in her hair instead of crowns and you know and everyone's just walking barefoot it's kind of crazy right and that's kind of the trend that it was and so everyone was like that's my perfect wedding and everyone interests it and people follow and they're like look at my wedding you should do it like me and so this is occurring and now the new trend with all the couples they're basically like i want to do it in a museum with like a big like staircase where I can walk down and everyone's looking at all the artwork and all these things and you know that's kind of the trend right soon next thing you know it's gonna be like in a swimming pool <laughs> like, that's the new thing we're all in diving snorkel gear and they don't know but it's gonna change but you are willing to spend ten twenty thousand dollars to have a wedding of your dreams and you know all these things and there's some very cynical people you know when you talk about how beautiful your wedding's going to be and mason jars and you're like really you're going to spend twenty thousand dollars on wedding jars right why don't you spend that twenty thousand on a down payment on a house huh how about that why don't you go and do a ceremony at like a public court and put a down payment on a house and then the girls like don't say that. <laughs> you know why? Because she, she, since she was like two years old, you know my daughter's back there, Madison, and she's sucking on her thumb. As soon as she knows how to like express who she is and whatnot, she's going to be like, Daddy, I want a big wedding. And I'm going to tell her no. Over and over again. But ever since... You know, girls were younger, they were dreaming and thinking about their wedding, and it changes all the time. First they want to marry their dads, and then they want to marry their cousins, and then they want to marry, like, and you're like, no, 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 that is okay in the Bible, right? And you marry someone outside the family, and, you know, and then they marry someone else, and all these things come up. But girls dream about the wedding day. The person might change, and all sorts of other things may change, but they're dreaming about the day that they get to be with the person that they love. And so it's something deep. It is something that they cherish and it's something that's beautiful. And so if you tell them something practical, like it's buy a house, they're like, no. I want a perfect wedding. One day, my little girl's going to bring home someone and she's going to ask me money for the wedding. <laughs> and I'm going to look at the boy and be like, no, you're not good enough for my daughter. And I think you have to say that at least once. Even if you like him, you be like, no. But I like it. <laughs> Try again. But if you were to ask some of the older couples who've been married for a while, did you love your wedding? They're like, what wedding? <laughs> I don't remember anything. Right? It was like a blur. We spent twenty thousand dollars on one day, and I don't remember anything. People were dancing and drinking and. All sorts of things. I don't remember anything. My family came. They argued with other family members that they wanted this seat and that seat. That's all I remember. You know what? That was the worst day of my life. <laughs> what happened? Right? All their life, they're like, I want to do this and it's beautiful and I dream about it and it's all that I ever wanted. I'm going to marry the man of my dreams and there's tears. Like, girls walk down, husbands are crying, wives are crying, dads are crying, moms are crying, and everyone's like, oh my God, that was the most beautiful wedding. Everyone hugs, everyone's happy. And then you talk to married couples like 10 years down there and they're like, don't do it. <laughs> what happens, right? Why do you go from like hopeful and, and something beautiful to something that all of a sudden you're like, oh man, this is disaster. When we look at this story, 
this woman, she had expectations of what she wanted in marriage. And you can see that because she had hope in marriage. And the reason why we know that she had hope in marriage is because Jesus pointed out that she didn't give up after the first time. You see that? If someone had lost all hope for marriage in the future, after the first time, they're like, you know what? Marriage sucks. I'm done with it. She got married again. And not only did she get married again, after the second time, you know, you would think she'd be like, you know what? This the second wedding was even worse. And then she got divorced, she got married again. And then she got divorced, and she got married again. She got divorced, and she got married again. And this was five marriages, again and again and again and again. And so what you can see is that there is a hope for marriage that is so deep and so profound. And there is even within the cynicism of having been broken over marriage again and again, that there is a part that is a hope that looks forward to one day, maybe, that it would be different. Every single person in this room, you know why you dream? Because you're hoping that one day you'll meet that person and that person will look at you and go, you are the love of our life and I'm going to be with you forever. And when that happens, you're hoping, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're building your whole life and dreams around that person and you're thinking, yeah. But when that gets broken, it takes you time and you grieve and you become broken. But there is a part of you deeply, something inside of you that believes that this was a, what God had created there are very few people in the Bible that the Bible describes as having the gift of celibacy where they just look at marriage and they go, that's weird. <laughs> For the rest of us, 99% of us, we're like, yes. And some of the people were like, no, I don't want to get married. I don't want to get But deep inside, if they're alone with God, and we're able to know their thoughts, they say, yes. They will tell you that they're done with it and all sorts of other things, but at the end of the day, there's a deep, striking truth in their heart and a hope that one day there will come a wedding and they will rejoice in it and they will be loved truly for who they are. And there is this longing and a desire that desires for them to be joyful with the person that they were meant to be with. And so with this woman is a clear picture. There is a never-ending longing. To a point where she even lives with someone, hoping that if they don't have that commitment and covenant, maybe this person won't have that over their heads and maybe they'll stay around. You see, we want to be loved and we want to love someone. But once we've been burned, once we've been hurt, it kind of starts decaying our hope. But the thing is, it never destroys the hope. There is still a part of you that longs. There is a deep, unending desire to be married and to be known and to be loved. My story, I, I've shared it with before, so I'm not going to go into details. And if you want to know it, then you know we can sit down and talk about it. But Dave, I did share that, right? Oh, for youth. Oh, with the youth. Yeah. Not here. Okay. So I guess I'll tell like a medium version of this story. Um, so I was married in 2003, and um, so for five years trying to have babies and a lot of miscarriages, I think over six miscarriages, a lot of brokenness in the marriage. Um, you know, great, like we never fought, you 
I did the dishes and laundry, and I brought her flowers on a random Tuesday, you know, like, I, I did all this stuff that I was teaching other people, you know, I was like, do this, and then, you know, I actually did it because I have to actually do it, you know, you can't say do it and not do it, so I was doing all these things, but all through the brokenness and not being able to have children, she just started decaying and dying inside, and I couldn't reach her, and I tried, and I did everything that I could, but she was just kind of moving away and becoming more silent, she stopped going to church, and so I just thought, you know, giving her space and letting her hang out with her co-workers and just be away from the church life and all these things just that she needed to do, and so I did that, and one day, um, she was in the bathroom and she was crying, and I came home, and I was like, hey, what's wrong, and she sat down on the couch, and she said, I met someone, and when she said she met someone, I was destroyed. You know, I sat and I was like, what do you mean you met someone you're married? You can't meet someone when you're married, right? And my whole world just destroyed because all I was thinking about was how I could relieve her of the pressure and hurt and pain, and yet she found it in somebody else. And so... What I realized as we went through this and I, I fought and then, you know, the day after I brought her flowers and I wrote her like this long note about how I love her and all these things to win her back. Eight months went by, I got counseling, all sorts of things and she just said, I can't, I can't come back because what if I do come back and I regret coming back and I miss him, you know, and all sorts of things. Now her heart was already gone. Tied in with the guy, just totally. And so my life devastated. I mean, I lost my church because of it. Like, I, everything that I thought was our marriage, everything that I believed, like, completely taken away. People started taking their children out of our youth group, saying, We can't have a pastor who's divorced. Like, we we're taking our kids out. And so church started falling apart. Like, PTA meetings started happening, asking me, like, Was it your fault? My presbytery had a meeting. Like, inquiring about if anything that I did, was I distant, was I always at ministry? And the thing is, yes, I was at ministry, and I did answer calls at 2 in the morning to talk to some kid and counsel them, other, but that's ministry. That's how you love people. And so it was, and I didn't know how to draw boundaries when I was a younger pastor, so I just kind of did everything, you know? And, and so I repented. I told her that I would quit ministry and work at Home Depot. You know, that's like my place. I'm like... You know what? I love Home Depot. <laughs> so I was like, I'll be a manager, I'll do whatever I need to, but I'll go work at Home Depot. And, and I told her, I don't need ministry. We can make our marriage work. And even after all of that, she said, no. You know, I, I can't imagine not being with that person. So imagine what my heart would destroy. Like literally can't trust anybody, like heart shredded. And um and the thing is, you know, and I you know, my wife, you know, after she's She's amazing. So even with a totally devastated and broken heart, she kept pursuing me. And, you know, she showed me what Christ's love was because when she drew near, I just kept rejecting and things like that. But she continued to love, and she she still does. You know, even when I reject her and things like that because of my brokenness, she still is able to love me through that. And and so, you know, thank you. <laughs> and um, when you look at her and her history, um, and you know, you can't say that I was the good guy, she was the bad guy, I had my stuff, you know, and I, I'm sure the way that I was distant, the way that I was an uh, introvert when I was home versus, you know, at ministry, I think that 
I'm sure a lot of things broke. So I don't want you to paint her as the bad person. This is just for illustration purposes. Like, I'm not the good guy. She's not the bad person. Okay? That is the wrong way to look at life. Okay? And, and so if you look at her and her brokenness in her life, what happened was she kept going from a guy to the next guy. And, and, and it was you know, someone who was spiritually more grounded you know, on and on. So, you know, the guy who she dated before me was a lot better spiritually than the one before that. And so she was hoping that someone who loved Christ, who God, who Christ was, would love her better than the person who destroyed her heart. And so it just kept repeating. And then she got to me, and she was like, hey, he's a pastor. And he is the dating seminar marriage guru, right? So it was like, you got to marry that one, right? And she found my Bible, and my Bible was like just... Posted notes, like every page was highlighted, and she grabbed it, and she was like, "I want to marry this guy, right?" And she didn't know it was my Bible. And then her friend found it, and she grabbed. She was like, "Who is this, Bobby? Oh my God!" And then that's where all the journey started for her. Not my wife now, but the ex, you know, and things like that. And so she wanted to upgrade and upgrade. And when she got me, she thought that everything was going to be awesome because I do what I told her I would do: Tuesday flowers, presents, whatever. And when all of that occurred, I think when she felt alone, even after marrying, even after trying to have babies and go through all these things, she was still depressed. She still felt empty. She still felt isolated and alone. She found somebody who had no attachments. This guy basically told her, hey, your husband, he's always answering phone calls in the middle of the night, loving other people, and he's not there for you, whatever, whatever. And she just said, this guy has no attachment. He doesn't have to take care of anybody, just me. You see, she was going from one person to another to another, hoping, right? She had hope, and she had desires, and she had longings for marriage. And she was hoping that by changing the person and continuing to look for something, maybe what this guy didn't have, if he has it, then I will finally get what I want. And maybe if this person, you know, and a lot of guys do this, oh, you know, I'm not attracted to my girlfriend anymore, and, blah, blah, blah. and so I, I like this girl, and I'm like, you just said that she was the one, like six months ago. Yeah, but she's kind of crazy. <laughs> and guys use the word crazy for every friend. They're like, no, she's crazy. <laughs> Sometimes you look at me and I'm like, she's crazy, man. Right? And they say that's the reason why they're going to get rid of her and find another person. That's what happens. Again and again, I need to find someone who are more attractive, someone who's more spiritual. Someone, and you label it Christian all the time. You're like, oh, someone who loves Jesus more. Oh, I want someone who prays more. I found one guy, he was like, man, I was at a prayer meeting, and then she came and prayed for me. I think she's the one. I'm like, what? <laughs> what kind of crazy logic, right? You're like, oh, you know, and she raised her hand, and when I opened my eyes, she was right in front of me, and she was worshiping. I was like, that's... Like, right? But that's what we do. We we look for anything because we're hoping that somebody, somebody better than the person in front of us, something will fix it and the hope of your marriage and the hope that maybe you met the wrong person, all these things can be justified. And this is why you keep going from a person to a person to another person. And she did. And she kept thirsting. And isn't that crazy that Jesus, as soon as met her, knew what her heart was and what she was going through, that she was on this endless journey to find the perfect person. 
And then, you know, this verse is used a lot. Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right? So a lot of wives are like, do you love me? Would you die? <laughs> Can I kill you now? <laughs> it's like, would you jump in front of a train if I was in a bed? Wives are great. Like, they're like, look at the verse! <laughs> you could at least take the trash out. <laughs> like, if you're not going to die for me, at least do something around the house instead of watching TV, right? <laughs> We use it. We use this verse and, you know, we, we talk about it. And then husbands are like, hey, look in the same passage. Submit. <laughs> if I want to watch TV, submit to me. It's in the Bible. <laughs> verse 32 clarifies everything. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ. It's not about you and your spouse. No spouse can love you as Christ loved the church because no one is going to die for you. You know, some people are like, I'll swim the oceans and, you know, climb the mountains for you. That's all lies, right? <coughs> all these songs that they sing, nobody's going to do that. They might do it the first six months, but after that, it's never going to happen again. That's reality. And if they do, even at the end of the day, it's not ever going to be There's only one person who ever loved the church as Christ loved the church, and it's only Christ. There's only one person who will ever love you deeply as Christ did, and it's only Christ. No husband who is a sinner, who was a sinner from his birth until his last breath, is going to be able to love you because he's selfish. The Bible says it. For you to look for that in a man, and then to have all of your hopes going from one person to another to another. To say, you know what, I'm going to wait until I find the perfect person, or I married the wrong person. Or then to say, you know what, this was wrong, so I'm going to fix it by getting another person who's different than that. I got an extrovert, you know what, I'm going to go for an introvert. And you just go from a person to a person, and at the end of the day, your heart keeps saying, I married the wrong person. Man, I should have married that dude, or I should have married that girl in high school. They were good to me. You see, your unending longing and hope is not for a person that is on this earth. It's for Christ. Because he says it. I am the only one who would die for you. And I did. It's not something that I promised and never not done. I did it. I showed you, and I will forever show you, and when I bring you home, it will be that promise kept. You know, there's conferences like Promise Keepers. You know why it doesn't last long? Because we're promise breakers. There's only one promise keeper. The Bible says that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, because he is the only one who can love you deeply. And never, ever forsake the truth and the promises that he's made. So your heart longs and your heart always hopes for perfection. It's because you want him. The person you marry, you try. In the love that he's given you, you 
give and you sacrifice and the love that you receive and blown away by you do. But it's not getting that perfection from the person in front of you. Because if you do, you're going to search in all of the wrong places. And practically, let me tell you this. Some of the guys, some of the girls, they stay married for like 30, 40 years. But they're in the exact same idolatry and adultery as the people who actually leave for another person. And I'm going to explain that to you. Because you will. Everyone will commit adultery in one way or another. Because you're dissatisfied with the person that is in front of you because they're not perfect. They can't keep their promises. And so eventually what you do is this. You, not, you either look for a person who you think will satisfy and will be disappointed by, or because you believe that divorce is wrong or whatever, you won't do that. Instead, you will find somewhere else to find your worth and satisfaction. If you're a Christian devoted, you'll become a leader in the church. You'll become an elder. You'll become a praise leader. You'll become something, and then people will flock to you, right? This is where pastors go wrong. This is where we get destroyed because... Instead of getting that adoration from home, because your wife knows, right? Pastor Dave and everybody will tell you, like, our wives know us best. And so when everyone's like, oh my God, Pastor Bama, you're so awesome, and I can't believe And the wives are always in the back, like, you live with that person. You will try to get that affection and your worth met somewhere else. Whether by playing a sport. So some guys, after they're like, I'll come home and they're like, ah, I love you. You know, and then they'll run away to the gym where they lift until they're like ripped. And then they'll look in the mirror and be like, ah! Right? And then everyone else around them will be like, Dad, you are Jack, man! And then you're like, no, I'm not Jack. Come on, man. You're like wearing two sizes smaller a shirt. Because you want everyone to say, of course you love yourself, right? And that's where you get your worth and satisfaction. And so you're going around and everyone's like, oh my God, you're beautiful and you're awesome. And you, right? You are cheating on your spouse or whatever. And you just found it in a place that's a little bit more acceptable. Whether it's at a church, whether it's in the gym, whether it's with a coworker, whether you are great at data analytics and everyone at work's like, oh my God, how do you do that? And how do you type so fast and program and all that stuff? You're amazing. You're like, no, I'm not that amazing. <laughs> right? And you'll get raises and you'll rise up in your work and everyone will love you and you'll be like, oh man, I am awesome. Because you're disappointed at home, because maybe the marriage thing isn't working the way that you imagine it to be, you find someone else, something else to cheat with. Your life, you think that you're not part of this adultery. Let me tell you, every single one of us sitting in this room is finding our worth and satisfaction in something else than Whether you sing well, whether you lift well, whether you work well, whether you're kind, whether you bake well, whatever it is you do well, you're trying to find your worth and satisfaction. Because you can't find it in your spouse and your children or whatever else, you're going to find something. This is where those parents who like only talk about their kids come from. Idolatry. Every idolatry is adultery. In your life, 
if it is not Christ, you will find something else that will give you your worth and your satisfaction. So don't tell me that it wasn't your fault. Because you either look for it in a husband or wife, or you look for it in your work or in your skills. We all cheat. We all place our hope in what's not supposed to be. And Christ is very clear. You were created for one love. And it's with me. And all other loves flow from this love. Everything else is idolatry. If it is not for me. And so she gets blown away, right? She's just stuck. I'm an idolater, right? And I keep looking at the wrong places. The second thing that happens in this story is that what every person desires is to be fully known and yet fully loved. You and I, we want to be fully known and yet fully loved. Okay, let me tell you what happens. When you first start dating, you put your best foot forward, right? Do you remember? Like when you, some of you, like, you're like, no, it's been too long. Right? And others of you are like, I never get asked out. <laughs> I can't go on first date if no one asks me. Okay. I'm just going to tell you what happens if you don't know. And if you do, then try to recall. Okay. When you first start dating, you put your best foot forward. Okay. You dress, you dress really nicely. Okay. And some of you have forgotten what that is, but you dress ultra nice. Anything in your closet that is best, you pick it up when you first start dating, and you shower every time you meet this person. Every time. You don't skip a shower, except for those girls who believe every other day makes your hair fluffy. And fluffy right? <laughs> those girls don't shower every day. But you shower every day, you wear makeup all the time, you wear perfume, and then every time you about to meet that person, you get nervous and excited. Every time a text, well, it used to be phone calls, now it's like email and text. It's like, it's like, oh, you get excited every time you see them. And every time you brush against their skin, their hand, a touch, something like, ooh. electricity, right? Like this weird feeling, okay? Your cheeks start blushing, right? Blood rushes to your face, and you look drunk. <laughs> And then when you kiss for the first time, like nothing else matters. It tastes sweet. In your mind, you can't ever imagine farting in front of this person. Okay? This is the truth, right? Then someone breaks this rule. And usually, it's a boy after like six months, right? I met this one husband. I kid you not. He said on the day that he got married, and he did it at the court, he came out of the courthouse and he ripped the biggest car in the entire world. And his wife was like, What? And he's like, Man, I've been holding that in It was like years. Someone breaks it, then someone gets embarrassed, right? Oh my god, I can't believe it. Right? Usually the guy farts and the girl's like, oh my god, I can't believe you did that, right? And the guy's like, ooh, sorry, it's just accident. 
and then they just kind of go back, and then it never stops. Okay? <laughs> Once it's broken, it just, like, boom, boom, one after the other. And the girl's like, what happened? Like, why did this never happen before? Like, why is this happening over and over? And then it never stops. All through marriage, until your last breath, it just keeps going. Too much. In the beginning, you laugh at it together, and then eventually, you stop. Right? Eventually, the wife goes, that's disgusting. <laughs> Can you shut the door? Right? All wife right now, like, oh my god, that's my life story right now. Then, once you're deep in a relationship, then you start talking about your past relationships, and you start talking about who you dated, and then this is like a question that just like, and then the girl's like, really? Five people? And you lie, right? Because you're like, five is like a reasonable number, right? And then she's like, really, only five? Because I know seven that you dated, and you're like, oh shoot, okay, 25, right? And you go through every person, and then you're like, you know, did you have sex with that? And you're like, oh no. And then you talk about it, and then now it's even deeper and grosser, and now you're finding out things. And if that person sticks with you after all of that's out, then you go, I have to marry you. <laughs> because you didn't leave me after everything. The farting, the dating, and all the rest of the story. I have to marry you. And so you get married. When you get married, it's no longer like, the skin touch, right? Like, if you ask any of the married couples, like, any of them, right? They're like, when your wife touches your hand, do you get nervous and start sweating? They're like, no, I want her to stop. <laughs> you ask the wife, they're like, oh my god, I don't know why he keeps touching me, right? And he's like, I just want to watch the TV show, stop touching me, right? Like, this is never ending. And before, it was like, oh, I can't wait for him. I can't wait for him to hold me up. And she's like, stop it. You're smelly, go shower. Like, this is unending. More misunderstandings. The things that you used to be thinking that they were really cute, right? They were like, oh my gosh, she's so organized. Like, everything is like to the pinpoint. She's never late. She shows up 15 minutes early. I get there and she just, and then I tell her like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm late, you know, I was doing something. And, I get, and she's always like, oh, she's all under saying, no, don't worry, I was just reading and hanging out, you know, it's okay. And then after you get married, it's like, why are you late? <laughs> why are you always late? <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> you don't respect me. If you respected me, you would be early. On time is late. The things that you used to think were cute and adorable, like all the things that you're like so annoying. You're like, why? Why are you so just let it go? Why are you always like this? Why do you need to make sure everything is perfect? Why does everything have to be clean? Can we just be dirty for a little while? You see, and then people say stuff like, we've fallen out of. Because our definition of love is the tingly feelings, the nervousness. When we see them, we just can't wait to touch them and kiss them and 
love them. And so when we're married and we're like, you're sweaty, don't touch me. You're like, oh my God, I repulse my husband. I repulse my wife. Like, he's always telling me and picking on me. About, you know, it's like, are you going to keep eating? You know, and you're like, oh my God, dude, stop saying that. Over and over and over, and we're going to find it, is that you are so annoying. You're so disgruntled. So it's easy for you to look somewhere else. Let me tell you the problem. Jesus redefines love for this woman and transforms her. You and I, we need our love definition to be transformed. You and I think love is a feeling. This is your problem. You want the tingly feelings again, so you pursue another person. Or you go after something that makes you feel alive. Basketball, when you score, when someone comes up to you and says, great golf shot, whatever, on and on. I mean, you have lists of promotions and things that you think will make you happy and joyful. And so you pursue all these things. But love is not a feeling. Jesus redefines it and he says, I fully know you. Let me tell you, you've been divorced by crime. You're living with someone. You have been outcasted in your love by everyone. And you are hated in your village and everything is wrong with you. You are fully known by me and I've only met you five minutes ago. Everything that you've ever done wrong, I am going to tell you and I'm going to speak it. And so she was blown away because she could hide it with other people who didn't know her. But for the first time, right from the beginning, someone saw her life straight to her heart. And every sin and darkest parts of her heart that she didn't want anyone to know, he pointed it out. And then he pursued her. Do you know what it's like to be known fully the deepest, darkest thoughts and parts of you that you would want no one to know? And to be told that I want you so bad that I would die for you. That there's no one else that I want. That I'm not settling for you. You are the one that I This kind of love transforms you. This is the reason why you keep watching all these like Korean dramas, you know, romantic comedies. You're like, yes, someone's gonna love me like this. Yeah, Jesus. No one else. It's not a boy. It's not some guy who's dressed in a suit and drives a BMW and shows up in the middle of the night. Jesus doesn't get fuzzy feelings for us when we are surfing the internet, watching porn, and doing all these horrendous things, and then on Sunday we worship God, and then for God to say, oh yeah, I get fuzzy feelings for you. Because he's there. He's not like the rest of the world that doesn't get to see our dirtiness and our adulterous thoughts and our sins and our lusts. He's there every second. He's there when you're not looking. He's there even in the deepest, darkest thoughts that you have. He knows you so fully that everyone else would be disgusted by you and yet he stares at all of that daily. And he loves you more than anyone. The person that only on your best days other people can love 
Jesus loves you on your worst. The gospel is beautiful because you are fully known and yet fully loved. He requires nothing from you for his love. Your best day is never good enough for him. He's that perfect. You can serve, become a monk, and you can serve and feed homeless children for the rest of your life, and it will mean not a drop more to him than if you were a prostitute who gave your body for the rest of your life. You will never be loved more by Christ because of your goodness. But you will never, ever be loved more because, I mean, loved less because of your failures. That's the beauty of the gospel. You know why people give their lives? Because it is a love that is incomprehensible. It is a love when read about, when studied, when meditated upon, like it transforms you. It helps you understand that there is no one out there there's not an expectation. You no longer have to look around the world and go, is there someone out there who's going to love me like this? Because there is, and it's only one. And when you're blown away by such a love, you are so transformed that the spouse that you have, you no longer pick at their imperfections. Because you're so blown away by Christ who loves you in your imperfections that when your spouse begins to have imperfections, you pray. You can't fix it. You can't change them. So you pray and ask God, God, let them be blown away by your love. Let them let go of their idols. Let them no longer see their worth and their satisfaction in all these things and unhealthy things. The way that you've transformed me to no longer want these things because I'm blown away by your love, would you change them? You see, you become mature because you are loved deeply. You no longer expect perfection from other people. This is why Christians who don't get the gospel beat up other people. They're like, oh, sinners, and you struggle with that, and I hate you, and they pick it, and they hurt people, and they say stupid stuff because they don't get the gospel. Those who get the gospel are so blown away by the love that they receive in their imperfections that they can't imagine telling someone else in their imperfections that you are no longer lovable by God. But those who don't dwell in the gospel, those who are living by the law, just like Apostle Paul, will kill everyone around them because they don't live up to their standards. And you know what the crazy thing is? They beat themselves up in the exact same way. When they come before God, they always feel unlovable before their God. And so they do the same things to everybody else. If you're blown away by this beautiful news, you don't have to do anything. It's called the gospel because it's good news. It's done. There's nothing more you can add to it. There's nothing left for you to do. There isn't something God's waiting for. Like, okay. Jack things up. I'm going to have to fix you. It's not, God's not nervous about you jacking up what he's doing. He's 
sovereign. He's beautiful. This message is so powerful that it has transformed the world. A carpenter who only talked and hung out with 12 fishermen and tax collectors for about three years transformed the world by the words he said. This is not something that you need to do. This is something that you can throw away from every day. And then it changes you. It changes the way you look at your marriage. It changes the way that you love your children. It changes the way that you look at your work and your home and your friendships. And no longer do you demand perfections for them to be loved. Lastly, perfect love removes fear. It's straight from the Bible. Perfect love removes fear. We're all very fearful. You're always afraid you made the wrong choice. You're always afraid, man, I married the wrong person. I, I went to the wrong school. I did the wrong thing. Think about me. Some of the people who, after I went through what I went through, are like, do you regret marrying her? And I was like, And marrying her jacked up your life. And I always say no. If you had the choice and you could go back, would you make a different choice? And I was like, nope. Because that's exactly what God sovereignly I made that choice, and I guarantee the person that I am, I will make that choice again. We are afraid all of our lives that we're going to mess up God's plan for us in our life. And we're always looking toward the future, afraid of what's coming. Because we think, is this it? Is God never going to fix it? Is this all that he has for me? There were times in my life during those times when I would sit um, in my parking lot after I led ministry and I would, I would sit there and I would I, you know, just, I had anxiety attacks, I was taking medicine. I had to take sleeping pills to sleep one hour a day. I lost 30 pounds, I mean, I was a mess. And I would sit in that parking lot when all my youth group kids and EM people, they all left, and I would sit in the parking lot alone, and I would cry out to God and I would say, can you take me? When I leave this parking lot, it would be really nice, because I'm not gonna kill myself, because I, you know, I was like, I don't do that. But it'd be really nice if, like, a semi-truck came and, like, just leveled my car. I mean, just destroyed me. And then I was like, God, because I know you, if some small car hit me and I lost an arm and a leg, you're still going to make me preach. <laughs> you know, I was like, I don't, don't want to do this. I need a semi-truck. You know, and even time, I was like, God, you just, you got to kill me. I, I need to go home because I can't breathe. I can't walk. I can't live. I can't do anything like this, and, and again and again the Word of God said, my grace is sufficient. Yeah. You know how I know? Because I woke up the next day. My brother would send me texts, encourage me through the Word of God and say, don't be anxious. But present your prayer request to God, and God will give you peace that's beyond your understanding. 
and I would survive one more day. And then he would buy me Chinese food, and we would eat, and I would survive another day. And then someone would come, and they would sit with me and cry with me. There was like a pastor brother that, he, I told him what happened, he just wept with me. And those tears healed a part of my heart, and that was grace sufficient for that day and the next day. And I breathed the next day, and I breathed again the next day. And I don't remember all the days of immense pain and loss and brokenness. And I, I can't tell you every day that I thought about dying and killing myself and all sorts of things. And it just, and then I got here. I have a wife who loves me and I have a baby. And I'm not telling you that you're going to get that. I'm not telling you that that's the good news. What I'm telling you is that he was there. He was there when I wanted to die, and he is there when I'm with my baby. I'm not here to give you some stupid prosperity gospel that tells you if you love Jesus, he's going to fix your life. Your life could be broken until your last breath, but at the end of the day, what he's saying is your marriage to your Savior is the greatest gift you will ever receive. It is the marriage that you were meant to enjoy from your breath first breath to your last breath, and all the rest of it. Seek ye first his kingdom, and the rest is a gift. If your life is horrible for the rest of your life, he tells you it's short. It's going to end. I'm coming back, and you and I, we're going to dwell in this marriage that is perfect forever. You don't have to look at your sickleness and go, oh my God, I hate it. When are you going to fix it? Because the answer is not another man or a woman. There was always him. You were always looking for him. And the person that rejected you and hurt you, they were looking for him, but they don't get it because their eyes were open, and so they destroyed your heart. But that's not their fault, is it? We were all created to look for him, to long for such a love. And you and I, we waste our, I mean, you can watch Korean dramas and movies, but you waste your time thinking that that's it. You can watch it and just go, eh, it's funny, good. But that's not what you're supposed to love. Love is not a favor. Love begins and ends, and the promises are kept from the beginning until the end. And love never changes its mind. And there is only one person who's ever loved. So why would you give up that love in pursuit of empty, broken sisters that can never sense? That's It's easy for you and I to play the victim. I was hurt. I was rejected. I did everything right. My marriage is broken because of this woman. It's broken because you don't have your first love. Because you're looking for it in the person sitting in front of you instead of the one that it was meant for. And you're always wandering around looking for it in a car or some boat or some 
gift that you have, or dancing, or basketball, or lifting. I mean, it's endless, the idols, the created things that you can pursue instead of the one love you were made for. Marriages are broken because there are expectations that are false, that were never meant for a person, that was only meant for one. The one who created you, the one who placed that desire in your heart, that was only meant for him. Your dating will be transformed. Your marriage will be transformed. Your friendships will be transformed. This is the only message that is preached at church who is faithful to the word and the gospel. It's all the same. You pursue idols that will leave you unsatisfied and broken and lost. When there is a love that is so powerful and transforming that it will begin to redefine everything in your life. It's not a set of rules. You don't have to fast every other week or go to prayer meetings to find the love of your life or have God bless you. The good news is that it was done. It was done by our Savior. He died for your sins. He lived a perfect life that you couldn't live. And then when you were his enemy, he found you and told you that you are his when you didn't want him. And then he went through the work of changing your heart so that you could actually believe that. And then you believed it. It was nothing to do with you. And then he tells you, now for the rest of your life, I'm going to come after you until you let go of all of your idols and realize that he was the only one that you've ever wanted. And then when that happens, you'll actually love better than you've ever loved before. That transformation will actually make you a better friend, better co-worker, better spouse, better girlfriend, better boyfriend than you ever imagined yourself to be. Because the truth begins to transform you. So, can you take this time and pray with me? You know, I, some of you, I can only imagine the broken relationships, maybe marriages that you're from. Some of you, maybe you're in an unhealthy relationship now. But just like Jesus came to the Samaritan woman and said, Hey, I know you fully, and I fully love you. That the hope that you have for marriage and to be loved deeply was always meant for you and I. Can you pray with me? Just ask God. God, reveal to me my idolatrous heart. Show me where I find my worth and my satisfaction that is not me. I want to find it in you. And I can't do that on my own, so I need you. I need you to change this. Remember King David's cry, Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. King David, along his journey of fighting, conquering, doing all of God's work, he forgot 
And he thought it was Bathsheba that he was missing. This beautiful girl. But it wasn't. You see, he, he kind of lost it all. But he used to be that shepherd boy who sat in a field and played music because he was so in love with his God. And he just got weary and he just got tired and he started looking everywhere else. And so when it hit him, when Nathan said, you are the man, he was destroyed. And he said, oh my God, is this how far and hardened my heart has gotten? And he just began to weep before God, who you created me, a clean heart. Because he couldn't fix his heart on his own. He said, only you, only you can make me love you. Only you can open my eyes. Only you can make me not look at the idols that I love. So can you pray with me? Just begin to ask God. Give me a broken heart and a contrast You can know what an idol is when something is threatened to be taken away or removed from your life. And it causes anger and it arises just, just feelings of hate, all sorts of things from your heart. And you are defined by them. If it's a phone, if it's a, your Facebook account, Instagram, a car, maybe if you're, you think you're beautiful and if God just took your looks away, if it's your job that you are so secure, well it's a government job, I can't get fired. you your worth and satisfaction and it's not Christ it's an idol but it's the hard journey of getting to that place where you can be honest and say oh man I do find my worth in this 
every time someone likes a post or likes this or likes that, every time someone tells me how beautiful I am, or every time someone asks me out or tells me, oh, you're so great at crafts or drawing, you're a great mom. No, but whatever gives you your worth, every time someone compliments or rejects it and your worth increases or decreases based on it, that's an idol. Because your worth shouldn't change if it is defined by Christ, right? Because He never changes what He thinks of you. All those other things are secondary. And so you're able to say, though you give, though you take, my heart will bless you. And that's why Job was called righteous. Whatever you give, whatever you take. <clears throat> naked I came from the womb, and naked I will return. It is all the Lord's. So let's take maybe a few seconds and just repent, you know, and, and go before God and say, God, you know, I want to get to a place where I'm so secure in your love for me that I can call idols what it is. It's an idol. I find my worth in it, my satisfaction in it, and I, you know, God is not going to take it away. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. But at the end of the day, the heart and the freedom to say it's yours, if it's causing me not to know your love, whatever it is, then it's yours. I would rather have your love and be blown away by it than this thing that I keep holding on to, to define me. So let's take time, just pray with me. Um, and then if you can pray for the rest of the people in our congregation here. Um, ask God, God, would you do some surgery in all of us today and, and the rest of the retreat? Um, we want to know the gospel and we want it to begin to set us free. We want to walk away from this place, not just emotional, like on a first date, but deeply in love, like 25 years of marriage. But we know and yet Let's pray.